Hello and welcome! The Purdue Institute for the Study of the Iranian World is proud to introduce you to our new podcast, Legacies of Ancient Persia. Our show will focus on the power of legacy. A legacy consists of three critical elements, a past, a present, and a future. Some pasts may be a deep and rich history, while others may be more recent. A present involves the sharing and analyzing of this cultural memory, whether deep-seated or more contemporary. And a future involves the goal of preserving for future generations the knowledge and understanding that has been gained from these current studies. Join us as we explore the legacies of ancient Persia and its relevance to global patrimony. I am your host, Lexi Henning. Today, I am joined by Professor Rahim Shaigon, Director of the Purdue Institute, and Dr. Marissa Stevens, our Assistant Director. Professor Shaigon has graciously agreed to provide an introduction to the five W's, who, what, when, where, and why, of ancient Persia. For those unfamiliar with the geography, chronology, notable figures, and accomplishments of the ancient Persians, this will be a starting point that we hope will help guide you as you begin your journey listening to our podcast. Please enjoy. Okay, hello everyone. This is kind of our little introduction to the Purdue Institute's new podcast, Legacies of Ancient Persia, and we are sitting down with our esteemed director, Professor Rahim Shaigon, and we're just going to go over kind of a few basic names, places, and things to introduce all of our wonderful new listeners to ancient Persia. So, Rahim, I'd like to start and just ask, what region of the world are we talking about? What countries in the modern day would ancient Persia have touched on or included? Yes, thank you so much, Lexi, for the question. I think it depends, of course, what dynasty we have in mind. So, at the greatest expanse, the Persian Achaemenid Empire encompassed all the territories from Indus in the east, from the steppes of southern Russia, uh, all, all the things that are stands nowadays, to the north, and all the way to Ethiopia in the south via northern Arabia and, of course, uh, the Levant and Egypt. And to the west, of course, the, the frontiers were a bit different and changing. So modern-day Turkey across the Bosphorus, uh, Macedonia, and I would say nor- northern Greece to some extent at some time. But I would say that that's basically it. That's, uh, you know, all to present-day Macedonia. That was a territory that was reached by the Persians in the, during the Achaemenid period in the West. And of course, that changed uh, in subsequent well, millennia. The next Iranian dynasty after the Seleucids, the Seleucid being, of course, the, I would say, the Hellenistic Iranian dynasty of Iran after the conquest of the Persian Empire by Alexander of Macedon. The first truly Iranian dynasty, uh, those were the Arsacids or the Parthian Arsacids uh, coming from the east. They encompass a, a smaller territory, but, you know, all the way to Mesopotamia and occasionally beyond it. But the I would say present-day Turkey and the Mesopotamian rivers, uh, that would be Tigris and Euphrates, were the borderlands between the Roman Empire in the West and the Arsacid Empire. In the East, I would say pretty much modern-day uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan were encompassed by them as well, and all the stuns in the North. And I think I owe you one more dynasty. 
<laughs> unending dynasties. So the Sicinians were a bit more belligerent and maybe uh, expansive as the Arsacids. They pretty much conserved the same territories as the Arsacid for the longest time. So I would say from what we call what they call the Kushan Empire, the Kushan Kingdom, that is you know uh, Afghanistan, maybe even within you know maybe slightly further to the east of Afghanistan and Pakistan nowadays, all the Stans as well, uh, and that would be to the north. And in the west, that would be again the Mesopotamian world. That would be the the Euphrates that was for the longest time the frontier line between the Roman Lemus and the Persian Empire. But at some time uh, around the last century of the Sassanian Empire, they were able to basically conquer much of present-day Turkey, the classical Asia Minor, and even venture into Egypt, which they occupied for almost two decades. So at some time in the 6th, 7th century, they were able to take hold of a large part of what used to be the Achaemenid Empire. That's wonderful. I mean, there are so many, as you mentioned, wonderful dynasties to get into. Now, I'm going to ask just to step back for everyone who may be a bit familiar with these terms, but are all of these dynasties, are they all native to the Persian plateau or where are they from? So like when we're talking about the earliest Persians, is it any of these groups that you've mentioned or was there someone there before? Yeah, thank you so much. So everybody on the plateau, but for the Elamites, seem to be newcomers. So the Iranians are um, basically the Medes and the Persians, who happen to be the Western branch of the Iranians, are well known to have entered on the plateau. We know that from the Assyrian Annals uh, from the first millennium BCE, we can almost you know follow the path towards the south and the settlements in Media and later in Persis. So those are uh, not indigenous to the highland of Iran, and neither are the Parthians, who happen to be probably uh, steppe people, probably outside of the plateau, who eventually rose to prominence and then occupied the former Achaemenid province or satrapy of Parthia, hence the name Parthians. So they are steppe people, Iranian steppe people, but nonetheless outside of the plateau. And the Sasanians are um, also complicated because, uh, yes, we know that the power base was Persis, so like the Achaemenids, so they are Persians. But uh, there is reason to believe that they might have been also steppe people, maybe a Parthian house even, not an Arsacid house, but a Parthian family that eventually settled from the east in southern Iran, in Persis, and then became a local dynasty by absorbing other dynasts and magnates there. And so the origins is classically situated in Persis, but their origin might be outside of the plateau. Now, the, the most important part, however, is that I have not consciously left out the Seleucids. The Seleucids are an exceptional case in the sense that they they are fully and should be fully integrated and have not done been not done so fully by me yet, personally at least. They are Greco-Iranian dynasty and they show all the signs of acculturation to the Iranian world. So as you know, all of these uh, terms are presently subject to change and modification and and being revisited and rethought. So whether we can speak of Hellenistic is 
is something that we are contesting nowadays, because to some extent, uh, we could also make the case that anything that is Greek that enters into plateau and through contract with the Iranian element turns into something else while preserving aspects of the Hellenic culture can also be called Iranistic because, of course, uh, in some way uh, or local to the place that the modification of the Hellenic culture to something new has uh, occurred. Because, of course, what is so symptomatic to the Iranian world, beginning with the Achaemenids, is this ability to absorb elements from everywhere else. There is nothing new about the Achaemenids or the art, is the ability to absorb everything from somewhere else and to resynthesize it in something new. And one could make the case that, of course, the adoption of the Hellenic culture on the Iranian plateau in the Iranian world is more of the same. And the, nobody would contest that the Achaemenids are not Iranian or the Parthian art is not maybe Iranian, the Sasanian for sure, nobody contests. The Parthian is a bit more complicated example, uh, but the Persian art is not Iranian. But all of these are showing signs of adoption, adaptation, and also are the result of a long process of acculturation. So the impact of Hellenic culture in Iran is maybe also an element of Iranization and could also earn a different title. I mean, that's absolutely fascinating. Jump in with a specific question. This is one that I should have asked many years ago, because it's something that's still slightly confusing to me. Are the terms Parthian and Arsacid interchangeable? They are not. Thank you for that. They are not interchangeable. Although many people use them as if they are. It depends where you are using them. So Parthian are an ethnic as are the Persians. This is an ethnicity, an ethnos. And uh, Arsacid and Sasanians are dynastic names that go back to uh, patronyms, but nonetheless, or patronymics, but nonetheless are dynastic names. So if you call the Sasanians the Persian Empire is correct, but it is also correct for the Achaemenid Empire. Hence there, we have to use the dynastic names to make sure we understand about which we are talking. With respect to the Parthian, since there is only one that has been both Parthian and Arsacid, they seem to be more interchangeable. And if we say the Parthian Empire, nobody would think that there is a second Parthian Empire. So we know that we are talking about the Arsacids. But when I speak of the Sasanian family members being a, possibly a Parthian house, that means I'm thinking of them as being belonging to the Parthian ethnos at some time before establishing their own Persian dynasty through acculturation with a Persian culture in the Southwest. I cannot call them Arsacid, correct? Because they are not part of the Arsacid royal house, they're a different house. That's so fascinating. And I mean, this opens up a ton of new terms, hopefully, and like histories to, to dig into. But one thing that has always stuck with me, and I feel like I've had this conversation with other people, is that we still don't know like what defines something or someone as truly Persian back then, because so many people tend to mix up ancient Mesopotamia and the Assyrians with the Persians. So I'm just kind of wondering... How do we make a distinction between that? So when we talk about and mention, you know, ancient Persia, someone doesn't just go, ah, yes, Hammurabi. Well, that's a very tough question. Is that if it is a question, it is very tough, and I cannot really answer it that that easily. Um, as I mentioned 
before we then answer the question of Marissa, the Achaemenid Persians are unique in the sense that they are able to absorb huge amount of elements that are emanating from different cultures they have encountered, be it uh, from the cultures of Lydia, from Egypt, from Mesopotamia. And, and of course, for that reason, both in the arts as well as maybe in the proclamation and even the adoption of a cuneiform uh, script that is n- has nothing to do with cuneiform because it's an alphabet, but just the uh, external vestige thereof or basically the form of it. The Persians are master in absorbing elements that is particular to different cultures and synthesize them into something new. So what I would say is that the great force of the Persians or the Achaemenid Persians has always been the ability to synthesize. It doesn't mean they have not their own identity. They, of course, have. And that forms yet another layer of complexity because in one hand they belong to the Mesopotamian ancient Eastern world, in the other they belong to the Indo-European and Indo-Iranian world in particular, with all of the different notions of cosmogony, of divinity, of religion, and uh, they are eventually capable of synthesizing all of this. But it is a detective story to find out the different features that belong to these respective conduits. So as masters of, you know, subsuming other things and making it distinctly their own, now we have a lot of, you've given us a lot of wonderful terms that name dynasties. And so I want to draw attention to, you know, who are the couple most important Persian kings that you think people should be aware of? Like maybe the, the main characters, let's say, of the Persian empires. Well, you know, there are the usual suspects whom everybody knows. And um, and so those, those would be the Cyruses and Dariuses uh, of the Achaemenids and, uh, you know, the Mithridatuses and the Shapur or Sapores uh, of the Sasanians and the Kosroes or Khosro. All of these people are well known. But there are some lesser known, actually well known, but, but those less bestowed with wonderful press as Xerxes. So to me, he's the most intriguing, the most interesting of the kings of the Achaemenids, because, of course, he has a very bad press. And uh, Cambyses, who, you know, about whom I have written basically uh, a master's thesis in the past, Bardia, his younger brother, these are some of the more interesting figures. First, because we know so little about them, like the, like the case of Bardia, or so many bad things about them, like in the case of Cambyses and Xerxes, who have not benefited from the, from the best press, which is mostly the Greek press. And of course, in the case of Cambyses, uh, the press that he was subject to from, uh, you know, the one eventually beneficiary of the usurpation, which would be Darius. I think I made it too complicated. So let's come back to the original question. I like among the Achaemenid lesser known ones. I like Cambyses, his younger brother Badia, who reigned only six months. I like very much to study Xerxes a bit more. I think we just recently had one book about the age of Xerxes, one book. And I cannot tell you how many books have been written about Cyrus. And, and that can still be, um, you know, supplemented with more. You know, there are princes of the Aquinid Empire who are very interesting, like Cyrus the Younger, who vied for the, for the privilege of reigning on the, Persian, uh, on the Persians at some time, and of course lost to his brother. So there are um, a, a number of interesting figures on the Achaemenids. On the Arsacid ones, um, yeah, tons of interesting figures, but I think I would probably 
be you know boring you if I mention all the names. So what whom I like on the assets, I you know just those whom I've studied. <laughs> no, quite a number of them. So um, l- let me be more silent on the Arsacid and the Sasanians because there are many of those whom I like. Uh, on the Sasanians, I could tell you whom I like really very much to study. It's the you know the royal king Narse. He is a son of Sharpo the Great, and the reason I like to study him because he has a wonderful inscription that is very damaged but well understood, and I find him to be a very exciting figure. So I want to set like a basic timeline and try to put these great Iranian empires in a more global context. Now, we don't have to go so much into like individual kings because I know timelines get crazy. But maybe could you tell us like what was going on in Greece or or something that maybe people have, have read more into when the Achaemenids were in power, who was in power in Greece or Rome during the Parthian Empire, during the Sasanian Empire, just to give us an idea of what was happening around the the region. Oh, that's again a tricky question. You know, on the Greek side, of course, on the Achaemenid side, you perfectly know well. It's the classical age of uh, of the city-states. You have the great cities, the great powers, Athens, Sparta initially. Then you have the Attic Empire, the Attic League, which is vying for, for hegemony in the Aegean. Uh, you have the Peloponnesian War and then, of course, the creation of other entities in, in, in the West. So I would say that uh, on the Greek side, during the Achaemenes, you go from the classical period of the city-states all the way to the emergence of new hegemons whom we hadn't seen before after the Peloponnesian War, up, of course, to the ascent and the hegemonial power of Macedon. So that's uh, roughly what you see on the Greek side, if I were to be very brief. Yeah, so for the Parthian period, you have basically, it goes all the way from the tail end of the Republic with the rise of the triumvirs, because of course, for the main confrontation between the Parthians and the first big confrontation is between Cassius at the Battle of Carrhae, one of the first triumvirates, members of the first triumvirate, all the way to, to the second triumvirate with Anto- Antony, all the way to the rise of the soldier empress. And that is, that's where actually the Sasanians take over. And um, that would be the third century crisis of Rome, which would be then uh, soon enough overcome by the so-called rise of Constantine and the Constantinian shift from Rome to Constantinopolis. And of course, the being preceded before by the rise of the Tetrarchy and figures like Galerius in the East and of course, Diocletian in the West. So those are some of the contexts. But I don't know if that is really that interesting. But I think it does help at least briefly situate what's happening because these are long periods of time. You're, you're right to you know to want to situate the context, but I did not even provide you any any context for the East. Let me providing at least some some nuggets of information on the Eastern side. Otherwise, it becomes too Westernocentric uh, to speak only of Greece, to speak only of of Rome under the Parthians and of the Sasanians. But I think it's also it, be, it behooves us also to provide glimpses of what is happening on the global scale. So we know that the Chinese and the Parthians have had some very timid interactions in the second century, 
CE, and of course under the Sasanians there is the rise of the nomadic uh, or the, the, the steppe people. Many of them, then there is the issue of the Silk Road connections, the Eastern connections, the seven embassies sent back and forth between the Chinese and the Sasanians. They are by far more interesting. And then there's, of course, this external power struggle between the Romans and the Persians for hegemony in, in, in the Levant, in the Arabian, Arabian Peninsula, to control the northern routes. All of these are things that are not really my specialty, but I think that would be informing best the question that you have asked. Okay, so I'm curious, what do you believe the ancient Persians are most famous for today? We can go anywhere with this you would like. You can pick any dynasty, anything that we have today. You can draw from anything. I think there are... um... A number of things that we associate with these dynasties. I think some of these associations and and their fame is also commensurate with the fact that there have been some dynasties have been better investigated as others, and some of them have been partaking of the great fresco of ancient studies, uh, or have been participating in in the study of the ancient worlds more more intimately than others. So the Achaemenids are probably the best known. So much more talent, much more time has been spent on on finding out what they are, who they are, how they function. And so it might be unfair to say that they are most famous because uh, it just happens that the Western scholarship was more interested in them. And somehow more talent and more time has been spent on on discovering who they were. The Parthians are what we call le parent pauvre of uh, ancient Iranian studies. Uh, much less time has been spent on them. They are very difficult to find out about. Their sources are more limited. They are more elusive an empire, although the, although the longest dynasty, the longest ruling dynasty, 500 years, almost half a millennium. So they must have done something right. But we know least about them. And, and that is usually, like in the case of the Achaemenids, predominantly from Western sources, of course, the Achaemenids have uh, many indigenous sources that are now best established. The Sasanians, again, are something in between, have not yet the, the prestige or are not as well known as the, the Achaemenids in Western scholarship, but are, of course, of interest because they happen to be or are deemed to be of much impact upon the nascent Islamic world. And for that reason, they have always been of interest to, let's say, Islamologists or or people interested in the uh, history of the Islamic world, the early traditions, the medieval period uh, of their rise. And of course, to those interested in Byzantine studies. So to some extent, what the picture I have given you is that you have roughly a historical tradition that might go from the first millennium BCE to the first millennium CE. So shy of two millennia of historical tradition, encompassing a huge number of languages to be able to, you know, to have a glance at over these this three dynasties or four dynasties, if you count the Seleucids as well as part of them. And each of them being subject to studies that are interested primarily in them because are complementary to their own agendas. Not uh, per se bad agendas, but, but agendas that are scholarly agenda. So hence, they they are approaching the field with a specific type of question, and of course, are seeking answers to those questions rather than seeking answer beyond 
that limited inquiry. It means that a lot of the ancient Iranian history is to some extent subject to to appropriation by different type of disciplines for the sake of complementing, of course, the discipline need of another field, which is absolutely okay, and that is how it works. But uh, it means that the core itself has not sufficient manpower to support a cohesion. Because we don't have the manpower and not yet the the, the talents uh, or the capacity to uh, hold this membrane sector together, of course, we see many parts of this long durée history being appropriated by different disciplines, which is perfectly okay because that is how science is working. But we also would need to have people who have oversight over this long durée, over this expanse of historical tradition to be able to come up with new departures. And as you can imagine, yes, each dynasty is different, has its own identity, but within two millennia, there is a lot that is being transmitted. So to be able to say something well about the Arsacid or the Sasanians, you have to really know well what the Achaemenids are. And to have to say something well about the Achaemenids, you have to know what the Mesopotamians did, uh, what the Egyptians thought, and again, what is the Indo-Iranian background of the Achaemenids. So um, it's difficult to train and difficult to have scholars who are capable of having a grasp of these many articulations, however deficient they might be. But to have at least a notion of the well, on the long-durée traditions and the general thrust of things, if that makes sense to you. So would it be fair to say that, to sort of sum sum that up, would it be appropriate, let's say, to say that it's difficult, if not impossible, to point to any single thing being considered like the best legacy or the best remnant we have from Persian history because the study of it is so fragmented that everyone will pick something differently dependent on the lens through which they studied Persian history? Yes and no. Yes, because you're absolutely right, because it's difficult to say what is so extraordinarily unique about the Achaemenids, because there are so much tributary to other traditions, also unique to the Sasanians. But then if you look at all three of them in one perspective or attempt to crystallize things that are particular to them, there are a number of themes that emerge. And these are themes that might be impressionistic, and and require a lot of validation through a better scrutiny of the sources and a lot of you know a lot of small work. But if I were to give an impression that one has after these many decades of dealing with them insufficiently, is that there are a number of cliches which are true about the Iranians, and that is a fact that the great ability to absorb other cultures means that. A priori, you must have a predisposition to this acquisition. So there is no intent, at least before the late antique period, uh, on the sides of the Persians to impress their own way of thinking, to Persianize everybody. But what is so unique to them is to allow, to some extent, other cultures within of course, within the context of the ancient worlds, it means with certain brutality still. It's not as if it is all harmonious. 
to allow for the large part the individual character of cultures they absorb or they allow within the commonwealth to remain and become become even more what they are in a certain way not only to remain but they might also reinforce it so that they know what it is so so they allow individuality or individual expression of culture within the the context of the empire at the same time they would like to reduce dissent within that specific individuality so at least they can define what it is so very often one has the impression again impression that the persians are allowing others to become who they are by formulating this singular identity for them and then by encompassing and preserving this multitude of identities within the context of the empire which means that when the empire collapses you suddenly have the impression that there was nothing there and so 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 often people speak of the elusive nature of the persian empire why for example the sasanians do not have as many vestiges as the roman empire why the achaemenids despite the fact that they have ruled for 250 years are so little known yes they also built in stone but but, but they are these vestiges and and so and and of course the material vestige is one side but everything else is another namely institutions language imposition etc all of this doesn't seem to be happening in the achaemenid empire and also in the other empires because the i think the the way persians proceeded is persianization is not the way to hold the empire but the expression of the individuality is and by helping them to become who they are they're in a certain way ordering their world and just this abstract notion of order that is bestowed upon these individualities allows them to be absorbed in the grander scheme of the Iranian cosmogonic order which is of course sustained by the supreme divinity Abraham Mazda so you can say that the triumph of iranism is the multitude of others and when it is vanishing as a cohesive force of political force there is not nothing there is the multitude of ha- what has survived it as singularities so there is you can say even a judaic tradition because there was a persian empire that allowed for it to happen and allowed it to survive now that might be too reductionist but this is again an impression that maybe the multitude of expressions of of cultural identity that survived the persian empire are precisely owing to the fact that they allow for individuality to coalesce and to be within the common world and when they are not extant anymore as a political force to hold them together the fact that there are so many expressions of individual of cultural identity or individual cultures is again a testimony of their presence and that is why they are so elusive to find and the same things is also valid for for the sasanians within the context of late antiquity uh, you must imagine the sasanians are operating in the 3rd 4th 5th 6th century at the time when the religious landscape is a different thing entirely this is the late antique religious landscape which you know with very powerful extraordinary um 
expansive notions of religion emerging, of course, Christianity being one of them. And then you have the Persian Empire, which, of course, owing to its own restrictions, because its its religion is is not allowing the same type of expansionism as, as maybe Christianity allows for. But at the same time as you have in the 4th century, let's say, or early 5th century, the, the Roman world with the unity of Christianity and Romanitas forming this extraordinary formidable context, you have the Persian Empire creating different institutions for its religious constituents. So it's creating the Persian Christian church. It's creating, before that even, the exilarchate, uh, the Jewish exilarchate. So it's, it is not, again, capable of imposing a specific notion of Persianism, of I- Iranity, upon others uh, by saying, okay, we believe in Ahura Mazda, we are Zoroastrians, actually the, the Sicilians were Zoroastrians, so now everybody shall become uh, Zoroastrians because they can't, of course, because uh, Zoroastrianism doesn't allow for that to begin with. It is a religion within which you have to be born. But so because of these limitations, they have to bring in the notion of empire, the, the so-called uh, plurality of empire to reform it in a different way. They cannot impress themselves upon others, so everybody else becomes like them. So then they have to bring in the plurality within the realm of the empire and allow them to be again ordered. So maybe creating the Christian church is one form of ordering again. Maybe to create a Jewish exilarchate is yet another form of ordering your religious landscape. And again, all of this plurality of religion within the context of late antiquity allows for the Persians to to create the political union and by other means. This is a different paradigm, entirely different than the one we know from the West or the known we are knowing from the late antique world. And I think we can only understand what the Sasanians did if we look back at what the Achaemenists have done in a different context. There is continuity in thought, not in means or realization, but in thought. These are the same principles at work. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense that the Persians wouldn't be so centered on forcing everyone else to be exactly like them, to be the same, but providing the framework to allow them to sort of grow in their own ways, yet providing a helpful general structure for them to be able to do so. I don't know if it makes sense, but this is a different type, well, different political paradigm. And I think it it makes only sense because you know what their own limitations have been. When the Achaemenids did that, we don't have, of course, the landscape of late antique religions. And, and we didn't have this, you know, we didn't have any Christianity. We didn't have Manichaeism. That is yet another, you know, uh, Iranian, uh, Mesopotamian religion that is extraordinarily expansive and, uh, you know, fastly growing in the 4th century. Those things did not exist in the 5th century BCE. But that is the way the Persians created their own world, by allowing others to be part of the common world, at the same time not so foreign to it, because they had been ordered by the nimble and subtle hand of the Persian power, which again allowed them to be encompassed in an ordered world. And that ordered world was on a in an abstract form, on a very, I would say, on an epistemological level, the manifestation of the religious concept of having an ordered life and an ordered world, yeah, a cosmic. It was a 
the reflection uh, on an epistemological level of an ordered cosmos. That's just such a wonderful legacy that it is this ordered world that creates this unity of empire. Yep. That is something that the Persians are are most famous for. That is just such a wonderful concept to be bringing into this modern world that can be so disjointed and at conflict with one. Uh, of course, that's not very foreign to you, Marissa. You know this to some extent from, from the Egyptian world. You know, there is the notion of an ordered world. But because, of course, the Egyptians are mm -hmm. geographically always more restricted, you know, uh, of course, with the exception of the Levant and occasional forays into the Mesopotamian world, but that that, that were really forays, they hold so many diverse people in one place. Maybe that that notion did not fully come to fruition as a craft, as a political craft. Right. I didn't, I don't think it had to have been such a big strategy for the Egyptians, but it's yeah. It, it's quite unique, I think, that the Persians are able to utilize this as, as a strategy for political unification. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, political statecraft. Mm -hmm. Sorry, not craft, the sense of artisanal thing, but political statecraft, yeah. And so kind of segueing down into the, the big question that I think that a lot of people ask, though, because you alluded to it earlier, which is also having this power to subsume other cultures, like, like elements of other cultures. And so it makes lines a bit blurry. Having seen this happen, right, why should we study ancient Persia in isolation? Or can we not study it in isolation? Should the study of you know, Iranian studies be interdisciplinary? Uh, yes, absolutely. It should not be in isolation. And again, what I mentioned about the fact that we need to maintain the cohesion of the Iranian traditions, otherwise you would lose track of the grander ideas and, and more persistent ideas that, that maintain themselves and sustain themselves through millennia. It doesn't mean that, that it has to be done in isolation or the study of the Iranian world. It has to be done certainly as, as part of a comparative study of the ancient worlds. It is uh, certainly part in many ways um, illuminating also for the ancient worlds to, to, to know what the Persians did because they are indeed synthesizing so many things that we, um, we encounter there. At the same time, I have very good friends, very close friends who are masters um, of the history of the Achaemenid Empire. And they are, that's probably more, more than just an impression, they often consider the capacity of, you know, of absorbing so many different cultures and to nonetheless impress upon them a certain ordered way of life uh, and also creating so many networks for exchanges, both intellectual exchanges, but also exchanges of, you know, commercial and, and mercantile exchanges and networks. They consider, of course, the Akhid Empire as the first prototype of a world empire. And for that sense, even if one does not want to study the whole Iranian expanse in one go, which is, of course, a difficult thing to do, the Achaemenids are an extraordinarily important factor to study as a paradigm for the emergence of the world empire and how world empire came to be. 
So to basically establish these large exchanges, these networks and make them to global networks. And global networks, of course, are a different animal in the sense that they, they are begetting new type of energies and synergies and uh, allow for, you know, for the movement of people, for the movement of ideas, for the movement of goods, and also allowing creativity to to express itself, to manifest itself on a level that we have never seen before. So, so to be even suspected of being the paradigm of a new type of policy or political order, namely of a world empire, is a reason enough to study that cabinets. And to me, I'm a specialist of the Arsacist, but I have least to say because it's <laughs> I'm still learning what the Arsacists are of having spent a few decades on them. So if I do neglect them, it's not because I have nothing to say about that, but I don't have these lofty ideas to express about the Arsacids yet. The Sasanians, however, are equally uh, extraordinarily important because they almost fulfill the same function for the late antique world. They are a decidedly different paradigm than the Roman Empire. And what they have created is going to mark both institutionally as well as culturally and even on an aesthetic level. It's basically going to inform the um, late antique Eastern world and, of course, the nascent Islamic world that comes there upon. But this is a very unique conception. Again, they are not subject to a single religion. They are monotheistic for sure in, in the way that these religions are, but they are an empire with a religion that is bound to an ethnic, to an ethnicity, and hence cannot be translated to others unless you do a number of, you know, very creative uh, manipulations. And so there is a discrepancy here at the core, being an imperial power with a multitude of people and languages, at the same time not being able to impose your religion because it is bound to the so-called dominant ethnoclass in the way that the Romans do with Christianity, because that religion doesn't lend itself for that purpose to the same extent. And, and so the creation of order in a world that is by far more united, both uh, on a religious level as well as politically, to create a new order, a new paradigm on how to encompass plurality in its core, in the midst of the empire is even a larger to me, uh, a greater achievement than that of the Achaemenids, because at their time, there was not a Rome and Christianity uh, rivaling their power. The, the Sasanians did that and stuck to their own tradition in a, in a world of competition with the Roman Empire and Christianity. So I'm curious, there's a lot of reasons you've given us so many on why we should study ancient Persia. Now, I'm curious to know what you believe would be the best way to convey a lot of this good research and information that is continually being produced to different types of audiences, especially those outside of academia who are hungry to learn but may not have the capacity to sort of sit through and and read dense academic tomes. I think precisely what you are doing, Lexi, that's that's exactly the way we should be doing these things, namely to diffuse and disseminate the main ideas about this world, about these empires, about these cultures and civilizations 
by focusing on the overarching ideas, things that unite these periods, that unite these different dynasties and empires within and with the larger context of the world. So that the minutia, which is, of course, a particularity of scientific work, is not going to take away from exposure to maybe overarching ideas that have by nature the the uh, propensity to inspire more and to engage audiences in a way that of course the toms that you were mentioning cannot at the same time this does not mean that academic institutions like the Puda Wood Institute for the study of the Iranian world and of course uh, other uh, institutions like global antiquity and and of course departments that are at the university level engaged in genuine and and novel science, that they should not continue to do what they do, namely uh, create more footnotes. That's where I spent most of my time doing. I write three lines and then spent my three days on fine-tuning my footnotes. So those are important, but once you have written so many footnotes and created and begotten so many footnotes, can you actually speak with some degree of um, maybe comfort, but always subject to ridicule about these uh, overarching ideas. Overarching ideas are inspiring. They are dangerous if they are, if they are not sufficiently supported upon, you know, those arduous research that I just mentioned. And of course, we can get it wrong as well, even though we might have done our homework. So, but this is how one conveys the love of specific cultures to the uh, wider public by focusing on the things that one thinks best define it. And and I could not imagine a better medium, more befitting our time than the podcasting that you do. And so the final question that I sort of have for you today really is, you know, we, we've, we've spent a while talking about the wonderful things that Persia has to offer and why we should study them. And I want to take like a, a step back now and ask you, we know why it's important to study Persia, but also now, why is it important to study and what can we gain from studying the ancient world more broadly, of which ancient Persia is a part? Oh, that's that's a wonderful, wonderful question. Thank you so much for this one. I think I had a number of clever things to say I had, if I remember them. Yeah, I think, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is is the fact that the the pedagogic function of the ancient worlds is still valid, always valid. We always learn from history, be it now more recent history or be it more ancient history. Um, what makes the ancient worlds more intriguing, I think, is that sufficient time has passed for us maybe to be less personally engaged in it. Not that we should not have affinities or likes and dislikes, but maybe that great distance of a millennium or several millennia allows us to maybe more dispassionately look at the ancient at the ancient worlds and and see what is indeed what we can gain from the study of the ancient worlds. So that's one thing. The second thing is ancient worlds are, in a certain way, the formative elements of our mindsets. And I would think that we cannot say we as part of communities that are operating within the United States or Europe uh, engaged to a Western tradition are, 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 of course, uniquely subscribing to the classical tradition because 
even the people in the antique worlds knew to the extent to which what they are partaking of, what they deem to be their own civilizations and cultures was owing to the others. Yes, they created a thousand different others. At the same time, they were aware that the ancient world is a is one expanse, that at the same time as they were creating others, they were also explicating why, for example, the others belong to them. So there is a moment of the creation of another and moments of synthesis to encompass the other. And so these two movements are part of what the ancient world is, namely a comprehension and understanding that history has movements of individualization, of pushing aside the the other world aside, at the same time as synthesizing it again. And for that reason, they had a notion of, uh, of this being a united expanse. And this unity of, or, or this knowledge of this possible potential unity, I think, is something that is extraordinarily exp- inspiring to us because it allows us to think of the ancient worlds as one patrimony as a global patrimony of which we all partake. So I would never think that Greek philosophy, Plato and Aristotle are not mine as well, that because they happen to be part of the classical tradition, they do not belong to me. Of course, I'm claiming them as mine. And uh, to, to the same extent, understanding the ancient world as an expanse, as a common global patrimony, allows us to, to maybe project some of that unity however constructed or construed it might be upon the present. And uh, look at the diversity of present as something which we can benefit from and as different cultures, as things that belong to our present global communities. And, And also consider that what we are today is partially because the others are. And we cannot, we would not have, neither in the past nor today, be what we are without the synergies that we entertain with the others. And and so I think the past as this globality informing our present maybe provide us with such a dimension as well in the present. Well, thank you so much for introducing everyone to the basics of ancient Persia and why it's important to study both Persia alone and the like the ancient worlds more broadly, I hope that this has set a, a good basis for everyone going forward. And I hope that everyone will enjoy the rest of the podcast. And I would like to thank both of you for joining me today. And especially for you, dear Rahim, this has been such a pleasure and uh, just, just a wonderful experience to be able to hear what studying ancient Persia means to you as well. Thank you so much, Lexi. Thank you so much, Marissa. It was lovely. And and I'm, I'm sure you have a lot of editing to do. <laughs> Thank you. Legacies of Ancient Persia is a Port of Oud podcast production, hosted and edited by Lexi Henning, with select episodes co-hosted by Marissa Stevens. Cover art provided by Hadley Leesman and original music by Brent Arhart. 
Established in 2017 as the premier research center for the study of ancient Iran, the mission of the Purdavud Institute for the Study of the Iranian World is to engage in transformative research on all aspects of Iranian antiquity, including its reception in the medieval and modern periods, by expanding on the traditional domains of old Iranian studies and promoting cross-cultural and interdisciplinary scholarship. Thanks for listening to our show. It's available to stream on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Portavood Institute and at Portavood UCLA. Or visit our website, portavood.ucla.edu. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review us. For podcast inquiries or questions about the Portavood Institute, please email us at portavoodpodcastproduction at gmail.com. We'll see you next time as we continue our deep dive into the legacies of ancient Persia.